And now I'm going to ask you to turn in your copies of God's Word to the prophet Joel and the third chapter of that book, Joel chapter 3. We're getting near to the end of this uh, book, this wonderful book. And uh, our verses that we'll be covering tonight are verses uh, 1 through 8. So I'm going to go ahead and set that passage before us. Joel chapter 3 verses 1 through 8. The word of the Lord there says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. And they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temple, and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory, behold, I am going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. Also, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a distant nation, for the Lord has spoken. Let's pray together before we get into the word of the Lord. Our great God, we do pray and beseech your help even now again, that you would open our ears, that you would bless our time together. Help us... uh, to unfold the the mystery given to us by your Spirit. We thank you for Christ and his righteousness and the fact that it is because of him that we can open the Scriptures and understand the Scriptures. So please show us uh, Christ, show us um, the truth of your word tonight. In his name, amen. Human federations take place for the purpose of either opposing God or worshiping God. In other words, when spirit-filled men and women band together, they worship. And when natural men unite, they rebel. You find that principle even as far back as Genesis. When the sons of Seth, you might remember began to call on the name of the Lord, the seed of the woman. Then you have a different set of people all over the world who are the seed of the serpent, and that is humanity, the rest of humanity, which bands together and together as one plunge the world into corruption to the point where God actually has to bring about a flood. But then after the flood, humanity once again gathers itself, unites itself in order to oppose God and his commandment to spread across the world. 
They said in uh, Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, in the Tower of Babel, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Uh, Why? Well, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So when humanity makes an alliance and makes an alliance apart from God, the alliance is for the purpose of dethroning its maker. Of course, it doesn't end there. Because once God raises Israel, his people, then the Old Testament speaks of the nation surrounding Israel as those who band together to fight against the rule of God and of his anointed, of his Mashiach, his Messiah, ultimately. That's what Psalm 2.2 says. The rulers of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah. And the same psalm actually is obviously used by the early church after the resurrection of our Lord when they realized that the nations and all these kinds of forces that once opposed each other had come together in an unholy alliance to destroy, kill the Son of God. The Jews and the Romans who uh, once hated each other, of course the Jews despised their um, conquering empire, the Romans, they once despised them and yet they band together to crucify the Son of God. And then you have Pilate and Herod, which it says that they had been enemies until the day that they joined forces to kill the Son of God. We might add even to that, the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were rivals against one another. And yet, Jesus comes into the picture and humanity again unites against God and his anointed. So again, whenever men gather, they do not gather and, and, and they do not gather to worship the true and living God. They therefore gather, band together in order to rebel. I even looked this up uh, today. The uh, United Nations, uh, of course, a gathering of nations together. When you uh, go into their website and they list what are the purposes that they exist for, they have uh, as some of their main campaigns. Uh, on the one hand, to destroy or abolish hate speech. And we understand that ultimately, by hate speech, they mean the gospel. Uh, you are offending me. You are saying that the things that I believe are actually virtue, virtuous. My sins, that the culture says they are virtue, they are good. The, the, the Christians are saying this is evil and you need to repent of it. And therefore, to them, that is hate speech. The UN gathers together to get rid of that. They also gather together to get rid of deco- or, to, or to accomplish decolonization. Which means to them, well, the West has taken over the world and has brought its values upon the world. And that is toxic to the world. And really by that, what they mean is the Christianity that made its way into the nations through Western nations, that is evil and it needs to be eradicated from the world. Again, every time that human alliances form, if they do not form for the purpose of worship, they form for the purpose of rebellion. This is why God split the nations and created languages so that to see if perhaps men might seek God uh, because uh, the, uh, the concept of borders and keeping se- nations separated actually tends to the salvation of men because otherwise they unite in order to destroy God if they could. 
Now, um, in our own text here, we've got we've gone into the into the portion of Joel's book in which we are studying a final coming together of all nations, or I should say, a next to last, because there is one after the thousand year reign of Jesus Christ. But this is a, this is a, a, a final, as it were, at least on, for this age, a final coming together of the nations for the purpose of assaulting the glory of God. And they do that, of course, by coming against the people of God. But what is interesting about this text and what we'll really focus on tonight is that God is the one who has actually decreed that this should happen. God is the one who's even energizing this assault against his own people. But then he goes ahead and punishes it. He, and he gets the glory for it. So he decrees. This is a, a, a principle that we can apply all over as we study theology and study the scriptures. He decrees even sin. And yet he punishes sin. He ordains that sin should occur. And yet he punishes so what, we'll, what we're seeing here is really um, a study on the relationship between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. That's what we're seeing here. The first thing that we see, this is in verses 1 and 2. The first thing that we see here is that God does decree the assault of the wicked against him. And by him I mean, of course, his people or or an assault against his glory through the destruction of his people. And you find that here in verses 1 and 2. He says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel. Um, the expression here, in those days and at that time, obviously refers back textually to what comes immediately before. And that is in verses uh, 18 and on of chapter 2, which we have already gone over. It's the period of, it, of history in which Israel is being regathered, restored materially and spiritually. Verses 28 and 30, through 32, which we saw last time, describes a huge revival of religion there in Jerusalem that lies in the future. The Spirit of God, it says, will be poured on your sons and daughters. And every class of men and women is going to receive the Spirit of God. Even the slave class, which was unheard of in Old Testament period. Even the slaves will prophesy. All of them will know God. All of them will have the Spirit. Or all kinds of people will have the Spirit in them. And they will look to Him whom they have pierced. They will have the spirit of grace and supplication or the, uh, the spirit of grace and prayer. They will call upon the name of the Lord. He will deliver them. And so, as we saw last time, he will restore them. And so it says in our text, beginning in, verse, uh, in chapter uh, 3, verse 1, In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. So again, the point is, Israel in the future will be a glorious people. They will be... Uh, 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 they will be standing at the forefront of all of the nations. They will be made glorious once again. Um, obviously in a new way because they are actually going to have a heart that knows the Lord. But as we've seen before, as that deliverance and restoration of the nation Israel is taking place, so simultaneously the judgment 
of the nations will be taking place. And that judgment is described here, at least the pronouncement of that judgment. It says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. The verb to gather here just means to draw together. It's a strong verb. God is going to be drawing the nations to himself. And we've talked about this before. We know that uh, this is a siege against Jerusalem that happens at the end of the age. This is the same battle that Revelation 16, 16 refers to as the battle of Armageddon. Now, interestingly, in that text, if you want to look at it with me real fast, Revelation 16, 16, um, it says here that um, it really is all of hell that is involved in bringing the nations against Israel. You find there the unholy trinity. Verse 13 of uh, Revelation 16. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that would be Satan, the serpent, out of his mouth and out of the mouth of the beast, that would be the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet so that would be the false prophet again you have an unholy trinity the uh, satan passing himself as god the father uh, the beast uh, passing himself as the messiah um, and uh, the, the god the son and then the false prophet passing himself as the spirit of god these three together um, uh, spew out of their mouth three unclean spirits like frogs and they are the spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. And then he issues a warning in verse 15. And verse 16 says, And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Harmageddon. So you have these unclean spirits that go and somehow draw all the nations to fight against the people of God who have been restored. Nevertheless, our passage referring to the same thing, the same thing actually says that it is God who is the one doing this. Notice he says back in Joel chapter 3, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to Je the valley of Jehoshaphat. So who does it? Is it God? Is it the unholy trinity? Who does it? And the answer is, well, yes. Satan does it. God does it. God ultimately, Satan immediately, right? God uses means to accomplish his intended end. In this situation, he's using the unholy trinity to bring about the judgment that he wants to carry. And, and so he decrees all things, including the existence of evil. He has decreed that all nations, he's gathering all nations, he's doing it through the sin of Satan, of the Antichrist, of the false prophet, of the people themselves who are coming to fight. And uh, this is a principle actually that is present all throughout Scripture. Uh, Exodus chapter 9, 14, if you want to turn there with me. This is, of course, the story of Pharaoh 
Exodus 9.14. And uh, by now, uh, five plagues, uh, or six plagues have fallen on the land. And uh, the six sort of puts out the, the magicians out of commission, the, that is the boils. And so um, this is when God sort of issues a decree that he will bring the rest of the plagues. It's already been decreed. And Pharaoh has not turned from his own sin. And so God is giving him over to greater judgment. And so he says in verse 14, For this time I will send all my plagues on you. No turning back. All of them are coming on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power, in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Uh, the verb that is translated here as to remain in verse 16 it's actually a verb that means to cause, to stand. It's the same verb that the psalmist uses in Psalm 148, verse 6, uh, to speak of the fixing of the stars in the heavens, the setting up of the host in the heaven. It says there in Psalm 148, verse 6, he also has established them. He's made them to stand there forever and ever. He's made a decree that shall not pass away. So the setting up, the, this verb, to cause, to stand, to set up, is... A verb that denotes not only the bringing of something into existence, but even the bringing of something into exaltation, bringing it up, exalting it. Proverbs 29 verse 4 says, The king gives stability to or builds up the land by justice, but the man who takes bribes overthrows it. So the point is that God is saying to Pharaoh, I raised you up, I exalted you. I made you a powerful adversary to my people. What for? Well, so that when I bring you down, it might show that I am this powerful. So that he can demonstrate how mighty he is in destroying mighty enemies. So notice the story of Exodus is, is more than just striking down Pharaoh. It's actually striking him down in such a way that the attributes of God are displayed across. Um, so... Uh, David himself, by the way, understood this. Um, when um, Shimei, you might remember, goes out and begins to insult him as he's leaving Jerusalem, Shimei starts to insult him, even throwing rocks at him. And when he's asked, should we go and kill this man? He says, no, God told him to do this. And really what he's saying there is that the attacks of his own enemies against him are actually decreed by God himself. He understood it. And therefore, he didn't feel like he needed to take vengeance on his own enemies because he knew God was behind this. And God is going to exact vengeance on his own enemies in his own time. And so, this is all to say that the sin in the world, or all sin in the world, occurs by the decree, by the ordination, by the permission of God the Almighty. He is the one who has said, sin will take place. And the final rebellion of all the nations of all the world shows that. And we find it here. It's no different. God is going to show his deliverance 
in his great power at the end of the age, one more time, by gathering all of the nations against him. It says here that uh, he's going to gather them in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Uh, the, the word for valley there um, is actually, it, it means a broad land adjacent to some mountains. So it's, so it's, a, um, it's, a, it's a broad field, which is we, what we see uh, in, in, um, in texts like Psalm 110, where it talks about the destruction of the wicked in a, in a broad plain. And it says that it's called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The name Jehoshaphat means Yahweh has judged. Yahweh has judged. Now, the, the issue there is that scholars have actually never found a place that's called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And if you read on, for example, in verse 14 of Joel 3, it says that the Valley of Jehoshaphat is also known as the Valley of Decision. And we know that, uh, I think in, in that case, we see it even, clear, even more clearly that he's not speaking of a proper name for this place, but rather he's giving it symbolic names. The Valley of Decision, and he, he says the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which means God has judged. So he's using these names to describe this place, even though he's not saying exactly which place it is. Uh, we don't, we're not sure where it is, we just know that it's near Jerusalem. But the point here is, again, to draw attention to Jehoshaphat. Now, um, you've got to think of who Jehoshaphat was. He was one of the good kings of Judea. And one of the things that he does, in fact, Judea will be more prosperous under his reign than ever before. Uh, because one of the things that he does is that he sets out to cleanse the land from idolatry to purge it from idolatry and even beyond that he's the one who assigns priests to go across the land and teach people the word of God and so he is a good king he brings great prosperity into the kingdom but one of the most remarkable episodes in his whole life had to do actually with nations coming to do battle against him gathering themselves to do battle against him and that's in second chronicles Chapter 20. I want you to turn there with me. Second Chronicles 20. It says there in verse 1 of Second Chronicles 20. It says, The sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Munites came to make war against Jehoshaphat. So notice, an alliance of nations here is coming against this king. Uh, the sons of Moab, the sons of Ammon, and the Munites. And they are more obviously than what jo Joab, jo Jehoshaphat can handle. It says in verse 3 that he was afraid and turned his attention to seek Yahweh and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judea. So Judea gathered together to seek help from Yahweh and they even came from all the cities of Judah to seek Yahweh. So again, here's an, uh, an instance in which, in, in which the nations who despise God and His rule are coming against God's man, the anointed one. And they're gathering themselves against Him. They're coming against His people and they cry out to God for help. And what happens as a result? Well, look down at verse 6. Uh, uh, there you find... I'm not going to read the whole thing for the sake of time, but, but there's a powerful prayer that Jehoshaphat prays. He's basically saying, God, help us on account of your faithfulness, your covenant, your strength. Then in verse 12, he said, Oh, our God, 
will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And what happened? Well, God, if you read on, you'll notice God sends word through one of the Levites. And he promises that he's going to deliver Judah. And he does that even without the army as much as throwing a stone. Because it happens on the next day when people come under Jehoshaphat's direction. And they start to sing praise to God. Uh, Meanwhile, the adversaries of Israel start turning on each other and they kill each other. So if you look at verse 24, it says there, When Judah came to the lookout of the wilderness, they looked down toward the multitude and behold... They were corpses lying on the ground and no one had escaped. So again, God delivered his people in this occasion when the nations were coming up against them. And he did it on his own. He did it all by himself. And of course, now we're looking at the battle at the end when he does the same thing. The peoples gather against the people of God, against Jerusalem. They are coming up. And they are coming up actually to their own judgment. They are coming down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. The valley where God will judge them. Where God will destroy them. They don't realize. They're not trying to do that. They're just trying to destroy God's portions. God's inheritance. They're not trying to be destroyed. But what they don't know is that that is actually the place where they will be judged. The, the verb to judge here means to decide, but it's on a reflexive stem, which means that he is entering into judgment, meaning he will not only hand down the decision, but he'll execute the decision right there. And we know, of course, that that is Jesus Christ who goes out and makes war against the people and slays them all. So he punishes the nation. It says he does that, he does that on behalf of his people Israel. So if you'll notice here in our text, the sin for which these nations are being judged specifically is that they have attacked God's elect nation. He says, my people and my inheritance, my nation, you've come to attack Israel because they are mine. And that is going to result in punishment. So that's, uh, that brings me to a second point here. And that is that. On the one hand, God decrees these rebellions against him, always has, always has decreed evil in the world, always said that evil should happen, and even gives, in this case, it says, I will gather them. He draws them himself, so even enables the wicked to do what they are doing. And yet, again, the other side of the coin is that he actually punishes the sin. And we're, we're going to look at that more here in chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 2. Notice he says again, I will enter into judgment with them on, uh, on behalf of my people, my inheritance Israel. And here are the charges against them, right? Whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot and, a, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, side, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do, but if you do recompense me swift, but if you do recompense me, pardon me, swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head, since you've taken my silver, my gold, brought my precious treasures into your temple. 
and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory. Um, if you look at the verse, uh, the second verse, verse 2, there's a verb here that says to scatter. That just means to disperse. And that uh, is in the past tense in our translation. So you do have to ask, okay, so during the times of Joel, the question is, is he looking back and saying, there has been a time in which the people of God has been scattered. Is he looking past or is he looking into the future and prophesying something that had not yet happened? And um, I believe that the answer to that is both and. So there had been times in the past when this had happened to smaller degree, degrees. And this would, the point that, that Joel is making is that this is going to continue to happen in the future. Especially because Deuteronomy had prophesied in Deuteronomy 28 that the, the covenant curse was that people were going to be scattered all throughout the world. And so he knows, Joel does, that the people of God were going to continue to be scattered throughout history, uh, even in a, a, sometimes in way, way, worse ways than others. But God is going to be punishing that. So... By Joel's day, um, some dispersions of Jews had occurred. But this is all, again, looking back from the vantage point of the future. Vantage point of the end of the world. He's looking back, goddess, and saying, you have done this to the nations. You have scattered my people. You've dispersed them out of the land. Later on, after historically, after the, uh, Joel lives, the Assyrians will come and they will take away the northern the northern kingdom and then babylon will come and take away the southern kingdom and after they come back to the land the land because of cyrus eventually the romans will come and they will scatter israel again after the death and resurrection of the messiah and of course two thousand years or so will will go while they are being scattered throughout the world and they are being persecuted from one nation to the, uh, the other, that is just Western history, what we have seen, persecution of the Jews. Obviously, the, uh, the scattering ended to some degree in 1948 when the Jews went back to their land. But in the meantime, they uh, had been scattered and the land itself of Canaan had been chopped up into pieces and divided by the nations. And so that is one charge that God is bringing to all the nations at the end of the age. Look at what you did to the land of Israel. Look at what you did to my people, my chosen people. And so here's another charge that he brings to them. And that is that they, uh, while scattering them, they also sold them into slavery. Verse 3 says, They have also cast, cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Now, um, the, the, the word lot here comes from a word um, in the Arabic that is that is uh, the word pedal or pebble sorry um, so that's because obviously ancient people they used to throw these little stones to determine some uh, choices we don't know exactly how lots worked the Bible never actually says but it's clear that they would throw these objects there's a, a, a proverb that speaks of throwing a lot in uh, uh, casting a lot in the, in the in, on the lap um, it's clear that they would, they would cast these things and, and that would, however they would fall, it would allow them to make some determination, some choice. And uh, they certainly used to cast lots 
when victories occurred, they cast lots for the clothes of Jesus Christ. So if we get something, some sort of spoil, and now we have to decide what is going to become uh, yours or mine, then we cast lots to decide. And this had happened, and this uh, had happened with respect to the Jews. When they were taken as war prisoners, they would be handed over, they would, be, they would cast lots over them. The nations had done this. Uh, and by the way, the law of Moses strictly prohibited this. Uh, it prohibited the sale of prisoners of war into slavery. But the nations do not abide by that. They sold God's people away. And to add insult to injury, they actually sold them for nothing. It says they traded a boy for a harlot and, a, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. So uh, the, the idea there is that they were, give, they were giving a young boy as payment for one night with a prostitute. And the, they would give... Uh, a girl just uh, as payment for let me sit down here and drink as much as I, I can in one sitting and you get this girl in return uh, and they would they were giving this to merchants and actually that happened throughout history we know of uh, records historical records that speak of the Syrians in the Maccabean wars that they their government ahead of the uh, of their attack on Israel actually started to sell 90 prisoners of the Jews for one talent. And then beyond that, the Romans, it says that they took in after the, the destruction of Jerusalem, they took in 97,000 prisoners. They executed many of them, but the rest, they basically sold them for nothing across the world. So the nations, they've done this repeatedly. They've sold the people of God for nothing. But it's not as though God has ignored any of it. It's not like you can do this with impunity. As much as he decrees it, again, that, sh that it should happen, he's still recording every one of those sins. And uh, Joel shows here, and he, he, he shows that by actually providing two historical examples in which we can see that God decreed that it should happen, and then he punished it. And those are Phoenicia... And Philistia. It says in verse 4, Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon? Um, again, the moreover here is for emphasis. He's saying, oh yes, by the way, these two did what I just talked about. The selling of my people, the scattering of my people, and they paid for it. The first one is the example of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon, these were the, the two principal cities of the Phoenicians. Since I say Phoenicians. Um, Sidon was the oldest of the cities of the Phoenicians, but Tyre was the, the most prominent. And they were both situated on the Mediterranean coast, some 20 miles apart from each other. And they were said to be the old center of the ancient world because the trade routes of all Asia actually converged there in Tyre. And it, um, it, it passed through um, the Phoenician coast, the routes of uh, the trade routes of Asia and whatever goods were exported from Arabia to the West, it had to pass through Tyre. So this was a very wealthy center of commerce. Um, the Phoenicians, they were the most enterprising merchants of the old world. And they actually at one point even had a friendly relationship with Israel. You might remember that it was the king of Tyre, uh, Hiram, who helped David and Solomon build the temple. He sent them timber. He sent him workers. He sent them metals. Uh, and in fact, Amos uh, chapter 1 verse, verses 9 and 10 says that 
Israel entire actually had a brotherly covenant is what it calls that a brotherly covenant. The idea is that they um, had guaranteed each other's safety. They had guaranteed each other that they would treat each other well. But obviously the Phoenicians are not going to abide by that later on in history. No, in fact, they joined the Philistines to harass Israel in the course of time. And, you know, we know that the Philistines as the ancient enemies of God's people, the sort of arch enemies of Israel. Uh, they were five city states or provinces, and they were also merchants. But uh, they were actually uh, the passage between Phoenicia and Syria on the north and Egypt, and Egypt and Arabia in the south. And at some point, they also engaged in slave trades of the Jews with Tyre and Sidon. This is where they decide to go against God's people by taking, kidnapping the Jews and selling them. And uh, the, 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 uh, the Philistines were the first link of the chain. They were the ones who took God's people. They sold them to the merchants in Tyre. And then those merchants took them to Edom. And uh, Amos is the one who tells us about this in Amos 1, 6 and on. It says, For three transgressions of, of Gaza, of Philistia, and for four, I will not rebuke its punishment, because they deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom. That's uh, Amos 1, 6. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza, and I will consume her citadels. Or citadels, and I will cut off the inhabitant of from Ashdod, again another Philistine city state, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon, another Philistine city. I will even unleash my power upon Ekron of the Philistines, and the remnant of the Philistines will perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not rebuke, re revoke its punishment because they delivered up an entire population to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So these nations, again, they had a slave trade going uh, that started with the Philistines and then moved on, moved the Jews on to the Phoenicians who sold them to the Edomites. And evidently, they even had sold many of the Jews also to the Greeks. That's what it says actually here in, in Joel. It says, you sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory. Uh, the Greeks there, the, the, the uh, expression in the Hebrew actually is sons of Javan. But those are the people of Ionia, which is one of the republics, the old republics of Greece. At, that, at this time when Joel was writing. And they were obviously traitors from far away. So the Phoenicians and the Philistines, they gave the Jews to ultimately to the people who were the most far away as possible, the, the furthest away from the land. They, they gave them um, so that they might not even ever think about escaping and coming back. And so they were guilty of kidnapping God's people and even of theft. Verse 5 of our text says, The Lord said, Since you have taken my silver and gold, brought my precious treasures to your temples. The, the word temple there also can mean palace. So the point is that these nations, they had ransacked Jerusalem. They plundered Jerusalem and they brought their stuff even to their own homes. That's actually recorded um, in Second Chronicles 21. That's uh, during the days of Jehoram. You can turn there. Second Chronicles 21, 16. 
It says there. Uh, it says then the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabs who bordered the Ethiopians, and they came against Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions found in the king's house, together with his sons and his wives. So that no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, the youngest of his sons. So again, you find there the Philistines. They come and they take, along with the Arabs, the, the property of the king. They rob them. And it says that the Lord actually was the one who stirred them up to do this. Again, because Israel deserved it. But it was still sin to them. They acted with sin in their own heart. And God is taking notice of that. Back in our text, in verse 4, He says, What are you to me? Are you rendering me a recompense? In other words, you're doing this out of unprovoked hatred against me. So, yes, He's the one who's, gathered, who, who's, who's enabled these people to do what they're doing and scattering the people. And He's brought them as a punishment to Israel. And yet, He's saying, But what do you have to do with me? Why are you doing this to me? Have I provoked you in any way? And because of that, he says, I'm going to take vengeance of you on, on you. Verse 4, if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. And then in verses 7 and 8, he says, behold, I'm going to arouse them, speaking of the children of Israel, from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. Also, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah. And they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a distant nation, for Yahweh has decreed this. Um, the expression, I'm going to arouse them, that allows to the future return of the Jews to the land. Again, they are going to be revived according to the prophets, and they're going to be brought back together to Israel. It's obviously, it's obviously uh, going to be far more than what you see nowadays. Right now, about 41% of all Israelites live, or I should say Jews, they live in Israel, about 41% of them. But there is one revival in the future that will bring all of them, at least generally speaking, back into the land. And it will bring them back under the banner of God, under the Messiah Himself. Isaiah 11.10, In that day, the nations will, will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and His resting place will be glorious. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with His hand, the remnant of His people, who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And He will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished, one, the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So notice, it is through the crucified Christ, the risen Christ, that the Jews will be gathered again. They are going, he, he has been lifted up as the one who died and rose again for the sins of all who would ever believe. And they will place their faith in Him as the Savior. And they will look back and, they will, and He will gather them under His wings. But at the same time as He is performing this regathering, this re restoration, the, the nations themselves also are going to be coming. But they're going to be coming for judgment. In this case, 
Joel was referring to the historical example of Philistia and Phoenicia, as we just saw. And, and he says, hey, there, in that particular example, you see that these people took the people of God, they sold them into slavery, and they actually would have vengeance of God on their head. And that prophecy already has been fulfilled. But it says here that they would be sold to the Sabaeans. The Sabaeans is modern day Yemen, but it's actually the place that the Old Testament calls Sheba. And uh, that would have been for the Jews, the uttermost parts of the earth. So God is saying, I'm going to send you to the furthest land away. You might remember that uh, Jesus himself said the queen of Sheba came from the uttermost parts of the earth. And so he's saying the Jews are going to are going to sell your sons and daughters into the uttermost parts of the earth. And that is what happened to the children of the Phoenicians and the Philistines historically. Again, this happened already. Alexander the Great comes against Tyre. Tyre was divided into two, a mainland and an island. He takes, he takes first the mainland without as much as a stone thrown. But eventually he decides that he wants to take the island. He builds a siege and takes it. It's an amazing story. I won't uh, take the time now to go over it. But he takes Tyre and it actually says on the accounts of the historians that he took 30,000 of its inhabitants, namely the women and the children, and he sold them into slavery. So this prophecy already was fulfilled. And also the same thing happened with the Philistines. Actually, um, Necro in Egypt comes against the Philistines and uh, causes a lot of damage to them. The same thing Nebuchadnezzar. But it's actually Alexander the Great again who comes and wipes out the Philistines and actually sells them into slavery. So here are two historical examples, even though Joel is actually speaking broadly, right? And he's saying at the end of the future or at the end of, of time, you're going to see all the nations gather together and judge. But he zeroes down on two nations that even back then, historically, even though it was still future to Joel, but already we can look back in history and see these were already punished in the way that God said that he would punish them. So you say, okay, so let me, get if I, let me see if I get this right. God is over all sin. He decrees sin. He ordains that it should happen. He even enables the evildoers to, to, the evildoers to do what they are doing because in him we live and move and have our being. And yet he punishes them for it. How do you explain that? How do you make sense of that? And I want to answer that by looking with you at uh, two passages. The first one is Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. And that is um, a key text that you always have to have in mind when you are thinking through the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. This is when Je Joseph uh, is finally regathered with his brothers and um, he is addressing to them this issue of them selling him into slavery. And notice what he says there. In Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. Uh, it's a, a verse that should be underlined and highlighted in your Bible. It says, As for you, you meant evil against me. 
But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. Now, focus there for a moment on the pronoun, on the demonstrative pronoun, it, there. What's the antecedent of that? What, what is the it referring to? The evil, right? He says, you meant it, the evil, against me. The, the action that you did in, the, what you did in selling me, in attacking me physically, and then selling me to the slave traders, that it, you meant as evil. But then he turns around and he says, the exact same action, you're punching me in the face, pushing me into a pit, grabbing me then later on and selling me to the slave traders, the exact same actions God meant for good. God meant it, the evil of the brothers, the same actions that, was ev that were evil to the brothers in order to bring about this present result. And what was the result? Salvation. Right? Salvation. Same thing we see in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? You put him to death by the hand of lawless men. You are guilty. And yet, this all happened because of the predetermined plan of the living God. He meant it for good, namely salvation, the same crucifixion that you meant for evil. The same thing. And um, I want to look at another one. Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah 10. Um, speaking to the king of Assyria. Beginning in verse 5. Notice this is God speaking. He says, Woe to Assyria, the what? The rod of my anger and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. Notice he's relating to him as if he were an impersonal object. You're a rod. And you're a rod fit for a certain purpose. Notice what the purpose is. I send it against a godless nation. He's speaking of Israel. And commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend. The, this is now, he's speaking of the rod, right? He doesn't intend to do this. Nor does it plan so in his heart. So what is the intention of the king of Assyria? Of Assyria? Well, rather, his purpose is to destroy and to cut off many nations. In other words, the, he is bloodthirsty. He just wants to get a pound of flesh. For it, and he wants to be exalted. Verse 8, For it says, Are not my princes all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish or Hamath like Arpad or Samaria like Damascus? No difference between the, 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 uh, the gods of the lands? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria. Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? This is the king of Assyria speaking, so it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, now I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom, I did this, for I have understanding. And I removed the boundaries of the peoples and plundered their treasures. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants. And my hand reached to the 
riches of the people like a nest as one gathers uh, abandoned eggs uh, I gathered all the earth and there was not one that flapped its wing or opened its beak or chirped and then verse 15 is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops it is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it that would be like a club wielding those who lift it or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. So again, God had decreed that this man would attack even his own people, the northern kingdom of Israel. And that was a good thing. Why was it a good thing? Because it was vindicating the holiness of God. When God entered into a covenant with Israel, he called them to live in a certain way and to maintain his name among the nations. And he said, I will be glorified no matter what, either by your obedience or by your disobedience. In this case, they had broken the covenant. And because of that, God now had to bring another nation to destroy these people so that his own name might be vindicated, that he is holy and that he does not endure evil and does not endure sin. And therefore, the actions of the Assyrians considered in themselves were actually good. They were accomplishing good. Nevertheless, they were not accomplishing those actions with good intentions. They wanted to destroy. They wanted to even blaspheme against God and show that they were more powerful than the God of Israel. And that precisely, that intent is what God judges. So again, God decrees all things and the decree itself is good. That he decrees that evil should exist is good. Because in the end, in a universe in which God has defeated evil, you have a better display of God and who he is than in a universe where there was never evil and there were never... Um, the, you never saw the unfolding of the grace of God and the patience of God and the mercy of God. You never saw that. So the decree itself is good. The ordination of sin is itself good. And even his raising up enemies and allowing them to attack even himself is good. But, of course, their own evil they are responsible for. This is exactly what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 9, 19 to 24. And I'm going to close with this. Romans 9. It says in, in verse 19, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Well, why judge them if he decreed that this should happen? Why judge them if they live and move and have our, their being in him and he enabled them? Therefore, for who resists his will? On the contrary, says Paul in verse 20, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not 
from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen.